Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Cremation. Noun. The disposal of a dead person's body by burning it to ashes, typically after a funeral ceremony. Cremation may serve as a funeral or post-funeral rite and is an alternative to the burial. In some countries, such as India and Nepal, cremation on an open pyre is an ancient tradition. It wasn't until the 19th century that cremation was introduced to other parts of the world. This is including America. During the 1800s, Catholicism was the primary religion in America and Christians preferred to bury the dead rather than to cremate the remains, as was common in Roman culture. They looked on the body as sanctified by the sacraments, and in itself, the temple of the Holy Spirit and requiring it to be disposed of in a way that honors and reveres it. They saw many early practices involved with the disposal of dead bodies as pagan in origin, and an insult to the body. Lucky for me, nowadays, cremation is widely more accepted. I get freaked out when my bare feet touch the grass, never mind being buried in it. In fact, cremation has become so popular in America that it recently surpassed burial as the funerary rite of choice. Few realize, though, that the practice entered American life for a very particular reason, as a deterrent to vampirism. Griswold, Connecticut In the late summer of 1990, a group of children playing near an old gravel mine made a gruesome discovery. Shocked with what they found, the kids ran home to tell their parents, who were skeptical at first, until one of the boys produced a human skull. Because this was Griswold, Connecticut in 1990, police initially thought the bones might be the work of a local serial killer named Michael Ross, and they taped off the area as a crime scene. Between 1981 and 1984, Michael Bruce Ross, you never trust somebody with three first names, murdered eight girls and women aged between 14 and 25 in Connecticut and New York. He raped seven out of his eight victims, and four of his victims were murdered in Griswold. Ross confessed to each of the eight murders and was convicted for the last four of them. He was sentenced to death on July 6, 1987 in Connecticut and spent almost 18 years on death row before his execution in May of 2005. During his imprisonment, he alluded that there may be more victims out there that haven't been found yet. 
but that never turned into anything more than just talk. But the brown, decaying bones that the children found turned out to be more than a century old. A Connecticut state archaeologist named Nick Bellantoni soon determined that the land around the gravel mine contained a colonial-era farm cemetery. New England is full of such unmarked family plots, and the 29 burials that were unearthed during the dig were typical of the 1700s and 1800s. The dead, many of them were children, were laid to rest in simple wood coffins, without jewelry or even much clothing, their arms resting by their sides and crossed over their chests. Except for one. Scraping away the soil with flat-edged shovels and then brushes and bamboo picks, the archaeologist and his team worked through several feet of earth before reaching the top of the crypt. Bellantoni was interested in the grave even before the excavation ever began. It was one of the only two stone crypts in the cemetery, and it was partially visible from the mine face. When Bellantoni lifted the first large flat rocks that formed the roof, he uncovered the remains of a red-painted coffin and a pair of skeletal feet. The feet laid in perfect anatomical position, but when the team raised the next stone, they saw that the rest of the body had been completely... rearranged. The skeleton had been beheaded. Skull and thigh bones rested atop the ribs and vertebrae. It looked like a skull and crossbones motif. A real-life Jolly Roger. Subsequent analysis showed that the beheading, along with other injuries, including rib fractures, occurred roughly five years after death. That means someone went through the trouble of digging up this body to do this. But why? The other skeletons in the gravel hillside were packaged for reburial. But not JB, as the 50-ish male skeleton from the 1830s came to be called, because of the initials spelled out in brass tacks on his coffin lid. He was shipped to the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington, D.C. for further study. Meanwhile, Bell and Tony started networking. He invited archaeologists and historians to tour the excavation, soliciting theories. Simple vandalism seemed unlikely, as did robbery, because of the lack of valuables on the site. Finally, one colleague asked, Have you ever heard of the Jewett City Vampires? When the thoughts of New England in the early years come to mind, most people's thoughts automatically jump to Salem, Massachusetts, and the infamous witch trials. What a lot of people don't know is that Connecticut was quite an active participant in their own witch hunt, with at least 40 accused witches being tried and 10 of them being executed. As the actions indicate, most of the New England area at that time had a deep-rooted fear of the supernatural. And in Connecticut, it would seem that witches and vampires aren't where they drew the line. The devil himself played a major part in some of the superstitions that has seemingly seeped into the earth in that area, evidenced by no less than 34 places in Connecticut named after his most supreme evilness. And it was in 1854, on that soil that was so pregnant with fear, that the story of the Jewish city vampires was born. Bram Stoker wouldn't write Dracula for another 40 years. The type of ghoulish entities that Connecticut residents thought existed were not the debonair, romantic bloodsuckers of fiction, far from Count Vlad, Lestat, or even my personal favorite, Count Chocula. The vampires of the mid-19th century were thought to be undead, zombie-like creatures who rise from the grave to find nourishment in the blood of their family members. In this particular case, the family was the Rays of Jewett City, who over the course of nine years lost multiple family members to what was referred to as consumption, which is now known as tuberculosis. The first to die from the mysterious disease was 24-year-old son Lemuel in 1945. Less than four years later, family patriarch Henry B. Ray was killed by the same illness. He was followed to the grave in the same manner by 26-year-old Alicia in 1847. In 1854, eldest son Henry became stricken with the now all-too-familiar symptoms, and this is when the fear and the panic set in amongst the townfolk. Now convinced that they were dealing with something well beyond a normal disease, 
The family somehow decided that the tragic, untimely deaths of their loved ones were being caused by their dead relatives rising from the grave and returning during the night to feast on the blood of the living. They needed to make haste. Something drastic had to be done to save the rest of the living family members and their neighbors. According to newspaper accounts of the time, it was with the pure intent of protecting the living that the decomposing bodies of Lemuel and Alicia were dug up and burned immediately. It is said that the ashes from both bodies were used to make an elixir that was given to Henry to drink. It was believed that the incendiary action and makeshift potion did the trick, as history does not record a specific date for Henry's demise, so it's thought that he survived his affliction. But what the hell does this have to do with the bodies found in Griswold in the 90s? I'm getting to that. Interestingly, the evidence sent to Washington and the research that the team of archaeologists did on the ground around the gravel mine shine some light onto who those bodies belong to. The gravel mine had unearthed a long-forgotten, unmarked cemetery that belonged to the Walton family of Griswold, Connecticut. Upon exhumation, it was determined that the body of J.B. had been decimated by consumption. Other Walton family members had also evidently died from the disease. It was after further research that they discovered that the Waltons, before they settled down in Griswold, were old neighbors of the Ray family in Jewett City, their farm being less than two miles from where the Ray family homestead was. Perhaps it was the vampire problem in Jewett that inspired the Waltons to relocate. This is really only speculation, but it seems as though when consumption started ravaging the Waltons, someone in the family probably had recalled that a similar situation had befallen the Rays years earlier. Taking cues from how the Rays stopped their vampiric epidemic, the same type of tried-and-true, preventative action may have been employed by the Waltons. It seems as though there were many other cases throughout New England where this kind of action had occurred. As chronicled in author and folklorist Michael E. Bell's book, Food for the Dead, on the trail of New England's vampires. Hindsight is always 2020, and we know now that it was extreme to essentially re-kill the dead to make sure they stayed dead. Or, maybe our coffin materials just got better. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Staten Island, New York. In the late summer of 1993, 12-year-old Ryan DeSalvo and his family made the move from the busy streets of Brooklyn, New York, to the quiet, almost country setting of the south shore of Staten Island. Staten Island has since become a much more crowded place than it was in the 90s, 
But there's a place I personally called home for a majority of my life, where I made wonderful memories with my family and friends. I miss it terribly. This one's for you. Ryan was an only child, and seeing how it was now late August and school was just around the corner, he didn't have much time to make friends. Being as friendly and talkative as he was, his parents didn't think he'd have any problem once school started. He spent most of his days down in his basement playing Super Mario World, or wandering his neighborhood with his dog, a corgi named Bowser. His house was one of only three on the block, and it was surrounded by dense woods. There was a small creek that ran across the street, and a pond that was more of a swamp if we're being honest, down the road on his side of the street. Some mornings, when he would take Bowser on his walk, he'd catch enormous turtles emerging from the pond and walking down the middle of the road. On occasion, the turtles would make it off his side street and onto the maid road and back up traffic. His parents and the neighbors would then try to shoo these things back to their homes. Beside the house directly next door, the third house on the block sat next to the pond. Ryan would walk past it on his strolls into the woods to play, or when he was walking Bowser, and he always thought it was abandoned, until one day when his mom wasn't feeling well and he offered to take Bowser for his evening walk. Something that normally was his mom's job. Did he run into the occupant of the house? Or should I say, he ran into him. Ryan never saw an old man move that fast. He heard him before he saw him in all honesty. Is that a corgi? The old man, who looked to be in his late 70s, shouted as he ran down his driveway toward Ryan and his pooch. He stood at about 5 foot 6 inches tall. He could have been as tall as 5'9 or 5'10, but he hunched over greatly. He had a bird's nest of gray hair and a combed over swirl on the top of his balding head and a big bushy gray beard. His eyes were a dazzling crystal blue. He was wearing an old faded pair of black dress pants with a pair of dirty white New Balance Velcro sneakers on his feet and a lime green short sleeve polo shirt that his liver-spotted arms seemed to sprout from. The man introduced himself as Andrew Seed, and the man and the boy got to talking. At first, just about the dog and how corgis are the royal dog and how the Queen of England has a bunch of corgis running around the palace, but the conversation evolved into a more personal discussion. Andrew talked about his life and the town that he calls home, told Ryan about all the neighbors, and which slice to get from which pizzeria, depending on your mood, since there was three of them with him walking distance from their house. Ugh, gotta love New York. They really got to know each other. Ryan told him about the move from Brooklyn, about his mom and dad, and about how he was nervous to start school because he didn't know anyone. He also let slip, in an honest way that only children can, that he thought Mr. Seed's house was abandoned by the way it looks. Andrew just laughed. Well, I've been alone here for some time since my wife has been gone, and I guess I've been letting the yard get a little out of hand now that you mention it. Don't let little Bowser lose in my grass. You may never see him again, and the queen would never forgive you, he said with a chuckle. I won't, Ryan said smiling. He hardly ever leaves my side anyway. Well, that's good. You wouldn't want him running off, getting lost in these woods, especially after dark. There are a lot of twists and turns in there, and it would be easy for him to disappear. The train also runs along the back of these woods, and there's all holes in the fences back there. There's no telling where he would end up. You must not let him out of your sight if you walk in there. And please, stay out of there at night, Mr. Seed reiterated with a firm but friendly tone. Ryan agreed, and they shook on it. He even offered to come back in the morning and help Mr. Seed take care of the grass. He'd even bring Bowser since all Andrew could talk about was corgis. Did you know the queen had a bunch? Andrew thanked Ryan, but told him how the summer heat was no place for an old man. He doesn't even think about stepping into his yard until the sun is setting. But if it's okay with your parents, you can come back down after dinner and bring them with you. I'll make us some tea, and I'm sure I have some cookies inside somewhere. Ryan gave a big nod and smiled wide at his new friend, and then turned and ran up the block back towards home, shouting as he went, Okay, Mr. Seed, I'll see you tomorrow. While walking into the street to watch as Ryan ran up the block, Andrew replied, All righty, Ryan, get home safe, and give his highness some treats when you get home. Just then, Andrew's attention was drawn to the edge of the woods, as something was rustling in there. When Ryan turned to give one last big wave, 
Andrew was gone. He must have went back inside, he thought to himself. When Ryan got to his house, he told his parents about the nice man who lived on the block and asked him if they knew that the Queen of England had a corgi too. A bunch of them. A little taken back that their 12-year-old son was out making friends with an elderly widower, their concern was quickly dissolved once they met Andrew. He was just as pleasant as can be, a perfect neighbor who had all the gossip and knew all the best places to eat. Sure, he had some odd fascination with the Queen of England and her dogs, but that was just about his only quirk. Ryan made it his business from then on to stop by Mr. Seed's house every day. He took over the evening walk of Bowser from his mom, and his parents were very happy with their son taking on more responsibility. It seemed that his new friend's old school values and work ethic were rubbing off on their son. He would stop by Andrew's house nightly, and they would talk baseball, and he would show Ryan all the amazing memorabilia that he collected over the years. Andrew's house was like stepping into a time capsule. It was loaded with baseball stuff, cards, bats, and signed balls. He even had cards that dated back to 1886, when Goodwin Tobacco included cards with their cigarettes. But he also had a collection of medieval weapons and armor that Ryan thought was just the coolest. His dad said that it had to be costume stuff, because things like that belonged in the museum, but Ryan didn't care. It looked awesome, and Mr. Seed really didn't care if he played with it. One evening, when Ryan made his trip down, Andrew was waiting for him in the driveway with his garage door open. He was standing next to an old, but in very good shape, mountain bike. He wheeled it out to Ryan and told him, Why don't you take it for a spin and let me know how it handles? I haven't ridden this thing since the 70s. The boy handed Andrew Bowser's leash and hopped on the bike. He wobbled up and down the driveway for a bit before he was able to keep control of the massive bike. Then he was off, circling the block over and over. Andrew was keeping time and shouting words of encouragement that Ryan kept beating his old time every time he passed the house. Bowser barked along his encouragement as well. After his ride was over and he pulled back onto Andrew's sidewalk, a little winded, but he couldn't keep the smile off his face. Andrew asked the boy if he enjoyed the bike, and Ryan couldn't say yes fast enough. Well, then it's yours, Andrew proclaimed. Ryan gave a little pushback, enough to be polite because obviously he didn't want to sound greedy, but in the end he accepted the gift. He collected Bowser's leash and walked the giant bike up the street singing, Whoop, there it is, as he made his way home. The next morning, Ryan got up extra early to get out there and ride his new gift. School was only days away, and he knew that his time to enjoy the rest of summer was limited. Before he set out, he sat down to write a thank you note to leave in Mr. Seed's mailbox. He knew he would probably see his old friend later, but he wanted him to find the note before then, just in case, so he knew how much he appreciated the gift. The note read, Dear Mr. Seed, Thank you so much for the bike. I really do love it so much. I wanted to thank you also for stopping me that day when I was walking Bowser down the road. I was having a tough time after the move, and your friendship made it easier. I want you to know that after much thinking, I decided to name the bike the Tower of London because of how big it is and because of how much you like the Queen's Corgis. Thanks again. Your friend always, Ryan. P.S. Bowser says you give the best belly rubs. Ryan took his pup for his morning walk and then hurried back home to get his bike to take it for a ride. He was looking forward to taking the bike into the woods and ride it along the trails. He also noticed during some of his walks that people had dug some ramps into the ground and he was excited to take some jumps. When he got to the part of the woods where the bike ramps were built, he saw that some kids were there already, taking their bikes off of them. Ryan felt a little embarrassed pulling up to the ramps on his old giant monstrosity of a bike while these kids were soaring through the air on their new GT Performers, a BMX bike that Ryan had his eyes on at the beginning of summer, but his parents said was a little too expensive, but they'd think about it after the move. The move came and went, and he never brought it up again to his parents. He figured they had enough on their plate. He was a good boy. Ryan rode up to the kids to say hello. Maybe they would be in his school that he was going to attend, and he can get an early start on making friends. He began to introduce himself, but before he can get a word out, the three boys just burst out laughing. Hey kid, did you pull that bike out of a dumpster? One of the boys said with a particularly proud look on his face. Well, there's a hand-me-down from World War II? Another immediately followed. 
Don't take that piece of trash anywhere near our ramps. We don't want you digging up our tracks with those dinosaurs' tires, the first boy said. Ryan, with his pride in danger of being hurt, spoke up quickly. I won't go near your precious ramps with this, but if I had a bike like yours, I bet I could take a jump farther than any one of you. The bigger of the boys stepped up and said, Okay, here, take mine. Let's see this. Ryan stepped off his bike and laid it down on its side and reluctantly took the handlebar from the boy. His heart was racing a mile a minute, but he couldn't back down now. That's all he needs, to start the new school year in a new place with kids already thinking he was a joke. He took the bike for a pass around the trail to pick up speed, and then he made his way down the path toward the jump. Pumping his legs like pistons, he soared from the ramp. He was right. He was flying higher and faster than these kids ever could have dreamed of going. He hit that ramp with something to prove, with a blatant disregard of his own safety. And it was because of this that he wasn't able to keep the bike straight, and he started to tilt to the side as he was coming down. He hit the ground leaning left, and the tires and left pedal hit at the same time, and Ryan slammed into the ground with a thud. He bounced off the dirt and landed with the bike on top of him in a heap. The handlebar hit his forehead and gashed him open. It wasn't a terribly deep cut, but if anyone watched wrestling as a kid, you know how much a cut on the forehead can bleed. The boys came running over with the one shouting, My bike! Ryan had blood pouring down his face and tears welling in his eyes. He was doing everything in his power not to cry in front of these kids. But that went out the window after one of the boys said, He bent your handlebars, man, to the kid whose bike Ryan was riding. That boy went over to Ryan's mountain bike and began lifting it off the ground and slamming it back to the earth. The other boys joined in and they began ragdolling it, jumping up and down on the tires, breaking the wire spokes and snapping the pedals right off. His bike, a gift from the only friend he had since he got here, was being destroyed before his eyes. And all these kids did was laugh while they did it. That cruelty to a stranger is what broke him and brought the tears. That hurt more than any cut ever could. Ryan picked himself up and started running, just to get away from these kids. The direction didn't matter. It was when the blood started pouring into his eyes that he decided that he needs help. The closest house was Mr. Seed's, and he set himself in that direction. He came out of the woods across the street from Andrew's home and darted up the walkway and up the stairs, blood dripping off his face. Knocking on the door frantically and ringing the bell over and over, he was pleading for Mr. Seed to open the door. Please, Andrew, it's Ryan. I'm hurt, I'm bleeding. I need help. He heard no movement from behind the door in the house and no responses to his cries for help. Please, he shouted. Open the door. The kids in the woods hurt me. They destroyed your bike, my bike. They wouldn't help me. They just let me bleed. Please, Andrew, help. The blood from Ryan's forehead was dripping down his face and pooling on the landing in front of Andrew's door in several fat drops. Ryan wiped his bloody face with his hand and pounded on the door some more, leaving bloody handprints behind. It was then when Ryan decided he better run home, and maybe Andrew went out. Ryan ran up the block to his house and burst through his front door frantically. His poor mother was the first to see him, and her heart nearly stopped when she saw her filthy, bloody son stumble up the stairs. As you can imagine, there was a lot of frantic yelling and crying going on in the house at that moment. After the initial shock of seeing their son like that passed, and everyone calmed down a bit, they realized that the injury wasn't so bad. That cut doesn't even need a stitch, his dad proudly proclaimed. Ryan proceeded to tell his parents the story of what happened, leaving out that he ran to Andrew's house first before coming home. They all determined that Ryan should stay home tonight and relax with his family, and have a movie night. He decided before they settle in that he should give Mr. Seed a call at least to let him know what happened so he wasn't scared that someone was killed on his steps when he came home from wherever he was. Andrew didn't answer, so he left a message on his machine. As day turned to dusk, Mr. Seed emerged from his home to go check his mail, and that's when he saw the horror show waiting for him on his front porch. The little puddles of blood on his steps had congealed into a sticky black jam. The bright red handprints of the morning had dried into brown smears on his door. 
Startled by this, he backed into his door nervously, and that's when he noticed a little red dot blinking on his answering machine. He listened to the story from his young friend, and his nervous concern turned into a furious anger. He returned to his stoop to open his mailbox, and that's when he found the letter from Ryan. Reading the kind note left by the boy made his eyes fill with tears. Bending his old body down to touch the small, viscous pools of blood, his bones creaked like old floorboards as he dragged his fingers through the jellied gore. He brought his fingers up to his nose and breathed in deep, eyes closed in ecstasy as he filled his nostrils with the scent of the boy's blood. His eyes jerked open when he heard the sound of laughter, boy's laughter, coming from the woods across the street. That night at the DeSalvo house played out perfectly. Ryan and his dad made a trip to the video store and rented a league of their own. They bought candy and some popcorn, and they made it a blockbuster night. That next day was a Saturday, and the family was enjoying breakfast. They were cracking jokes and just enjoying the morning together. The doorbell rang at around 9.15, and when Dad went to see who it was, he saw there were two policemen standing on the porch. They had some questions about a couple of kids who never made it home yesterday, and how they knew that they played in the woods down the road. When Dad stepped outside to talk to them, with Mom standing in the doorway, that's when Dad looked down the block and noticed the police tape blocking off the road down by Mr. Seed's house. When he asked the police what that was about, they didn't get into too much detail, but they said they'd been trying to locate him to ask him about the amount of blood on his front door and steps and the trail of blood leading from the woods to the man's home. Ryan didn't spend much time outside after that, and the rest of the summer passed extremely slowly. His parents took over dog walking duty, school started, and they had a special assembly about the missing boys and how to practice safe travels to and from school. Curfew was put into effect for a little while for all school-aged children, and Ryan's parents extended it for their son even after the county ended the mandate in the middle of October. At almost eight weeks since the incident, things were starting to go back to normal. Ryan still couldn't believe what the news and neighbors were saying about his friend, even though it was kind of suspicious that Mr. Seed vanished after it happened, and his whereabouts were still unknown. He felt that the kind, generous, gentle man that he knew could never do something to hurt a child, or anyone for that matter. Over the weeks since the incident, Mr. Seed's house was torn apart by police, and there was no evidence found in the house that could have linked him to the crime. The barricades that were blocking the entrance to the woods were taken down a week before Halloween, after the police finished combing the place top to bottom for clues. It's rumored that they found the remains of one of the boys, but it was so badly mutilated that they couldn't identify who it belonged to. It was like it was mauled by a bear. Of course, that led to more rumors about how the woods were now haunted, or there was some kind of monster or some wild animals living in there. Some people even said that maybe the devil from New Jersey wanted a change of scenery and came to Staten Island for a visit. One night, Ryan, who was feeling a little claustrophobic from being cooped up in the house for so long, there's only so much a boy can take. Right to school and right home have been his new normal for weeks now, and he just wanted to get out of the house and get some air. He was finally able to talk his parents into letting him take Bowser for his evening walk, as long as he promised not to go too far and to definitely not even think about going near Mr. Seed's house or the woods. Ryan promised and said he'd even try to get Bowser to do his business in the middle of the street if he could. As he made his way down the block, the air was cool and crisp against his skin. The moon was high in the sky and bright as ever. The smell of damp leaves and burning wood was rich in the air. It was fall. As he started walking past the pond toward Mr. Seed's house, he made his way toward the middle of the street to not disobey his parents. But Bowser still hadn't gone to the bathroom yet, so his walk had to continue. As he was making way past the home, his attention wasn't on the dog, but that of Mr. Seed's house. A noise from within the woods, however, drew Bowser's attention, and he was able to pull away from the boy and dart for the trees. Ryan turned his head to see the leash dragging behind his pup as he made his way into the dark woods. Ryan called out, Bowser, no, stay! But the dog kept on running. Ryan darted into the woods after him. The warm yellow glow of the streetlights was dampened by the trees, and only the brilliant hue of the moon was creeping down through the branches overhead. 
Frantic for his eyes to adjust so he could see where he was going and not lose sight of his dog's leash dragging behind him, he made his way through the thick growth. Coming around a trail bend that was lined with overgrown bushes is where he saw him. Bowser! He was standing about 10 yards ahead of him further down the trail. As he got closer, he noticed the little guy was wagging his butt wildly back and forth, something he does when he's excited to see someone. It was then that his attention went to who Bowser was standing in front of. Was that Mr. Seed? It looked like him, but he seemed taller now, standing up straight. Also, his hair was different. Firstly, it wasn't as gray as it was, but it was also fuller. It was his eyes that made Ryan sure that's who he was staring at. Those piercing blue eyes were unmistakable. Mr. Seed? Andrew said hesitantly at first. Is that you? The figure followed up with, I thought I told you never to come here at night, Ryan. Andrew! Ryan shouted excitedly as he started to quickly make his way towards his friend. No, Ryan, stay where you are, Andrew demanded. Ryan stopped where he was, maybe about ten feet from his friend, when he got a clear look at his face. His mouth and beard were sticky with what looked like blood. Fresh blood. His teeth looked different as well. They looked sharp. You must not come any closer to me. I fear I'm going to lose control, Andrew said to the boy, while Bowser happily barked and jumped onto the man with his front paws. Andrew, what happened? People are saying terrible things. What are you doing here? Bowser, get down. I have to tell you something, Ryan. And I only do this because maybe one day in the future, you will be able to forgive me for what I'm going to do. I'm a vampire. Ryan heard the words, but they didn't really register. This guy isn't serious. Ryan responded with a smirk. What are you talking about? A vampire. They aren't. Real? Andrew said as he cut off the boy's sentence. Well, I assure you, I'm very real. There aren't a whole lot of us left. It's not how it is in the books or on TV shows. We don't turn into bats or live in mountainside castles. Yes, I need to feed off blood, but I feed mostly off wild rodents. Ryan's still not really understanding or believing what he's hearing, but decides to play along and asks, Is that why you don't come out during the day? Yes, Andrew says. It's not because I'm going to burst into flames or anything like that, but because, like albinos... Do you know what an albino is, Ryan? Ryan nods. We don't have melanin. I'll burn very easy, and my risk of cancer is very high. I cannot risk that. It will either be I let the cancer kill me, or I go to a doctor and be found out. As you can imagine, my blood work would come back a little odd, which is why we don't feed on humans anymore. Missing people raises too many red flags. It dawned on him what Andrew meant by that. A horrified look came across Ryan's face, and Mr. Seed now understood that Ryan has put the pieces together. Andrew raised his hands and pressed them together in front of his chest as he continued. Ryan, you have to understand. I'm over 600 years old. Over the last 300 or so, I've lived a very peaceful life. But it's been lonely. Your kindness and friendship has meant everything to me. When I saw what those boys have done to you, the rage took me over. And your blood. The scent and the and taste of it. Ryan, I'm not a monster. I'm an addict. I can't control myself when it's time to feed, which is why I told you to keep out of here. I didn't think I'd ever be able to hurt another person, but those cruel children. I've seen those types before. They deserved what they got. Ryan started to speak up, but he was cut off immediately. No, Ryan. Now is not the time for words. Now is the time for you to go. Human blood is so much more rich than animals. It's heroin to my kind. I've been clean for over 300 years, but I can't stand in your presence much longer. The smell of you is in my nose. I apologize for what I'm about to do, but no, I only do it 
to give you the time to get out of here. Andrew then looks down at the dog playfully yapping at his feet. I'm sorry, boy. Just then, quick as anything Ryan's ever seen, Andrew scooped up Bowser and sunk his teeth directly into the dog's pink belly. The corgi's little legs squirmed in the air like he was running upside down, and he was letting out horrible yelps of pain. Ryan screamed at the top of his lungs, crying in distress over what was happening to his little friend. Andrew looked up from his prey with tears streaming down his cheeks, mixing with the blood that was all over his mouth, and stared into Ryan's face. Andrew roared, Go! Now! Or you'll be next, boy! As he removed the collar off the lifeless corgi and tossed it to the boy. Ryan turned and ran, crashing through bushes and shoulder slapping into tree trunks as he made his way to the street. Once his feet hit asphalt, he collapsed to the ground under the hum of the streetlight. Being gone for so long, his parents were walking down the block looking for their son and came running over once they saw him. Their son was crying hysterically when they reached him, and he couldn't even put into words what happened. All he could do was hold up his friend's bloody collar. Ryan explained what happens to his parents, and the police were immediately called. They came and searched the woods, but couldn't find any sign of Andrew or the dog. Ryan had a very hard time after this and spent the majority of his formative years in various psychological installations. As he grew from a teenager to young adult, with the help of a team of doctors and the love and support of his family, Ryan adjusted the best that he could. For a while, the medical bills were something that caused a lot of stress and pressure for the DeSalvo family, until one day when they received a money order for a very large sum of money from a man from Poland. In the memo, it simply read, Thank you for completing my collection. They brought the check to a law firm and contacted different financial institutes to check the legitimacy of the check. It was legit. The funds were theirs, and everything was on the up and up, according to their lawyer. Ryan is now a 40-year-old man. He is married with two beautiful daughters. He has a successful carpentry business and just a wonderful home life. The memories of what happened to him as a child still come to him in the night, which cause him to have very vivid nightmares, and he still experiences a lot of sleepless nights. He also hasn't had another dog since Bowser, even though his kids have been begging for one, and still has the collar and tag attached to his keys. He also still gets random money orders now and then from various collectors and memorabilia shops. Most of the time, he just donates them to rehabilitation and addiction centers, never talking about who the checks are from with anyone. Nothing really strange ever happened to Ryan after that October night in 1993. His life, which could have gone in the total opposite direction after that night, just kind of worked out. He met his wife after meeting her at his gym, but he ended up not having the guts to talk to her. It was on the way home one night that he saw her standing next to her car, flagging him down after her tires just exploded, as she put it. His business is thriving. He always wins the bids for the big contracts. It's like all the other companies just back out of the bids, regardless of the number. He chalks that up to the quality of his work. But when it's just him, and he's sitting by himself with his thoughts, he accredits his wonderful life to his amazing support system, his beautiful family, some luck and the number of missing pet posters he passes daily. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin MacLeod.